0: So, Aparamada readers, my name is Ratnaguna, and I'm delighted today to have Yannavatsha here with me. Welcome, Yannavatsha.
1: Thank you, Ratnaguna. Pleasure. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Thank you. It's. Uh, I'm really, really excited today. I'm always excited before these interviews because they're <laughs> so enjoyable. But I'm doubly excited today because this is the first in a series called Books Worth Reading. So what we're going to do over the next few months is I'll be interviewing various people on a book they think is really worth reading. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do with Nyalavaccha and he's the first. So I'm really excited. Thanks so much for doing this, Nyalavaccha.
1: No, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, Many people will know you well already, uh, (laughs) but you you sent me a few notes about yourself. I'm just going to read some of those to people. (laughs) You were ordained into Tri Ratna Buddhist order uh, by Sabuti, and in India, mm. now you look Indian, but i don 't think you are Indian. is that right?
1: Well, my parents were Indian, but i 've lived most of my life in England since I was two and i wasn 't born in India anywhere. I was born in Africa in Kenya, ah. so my grandparents had migrated over to Kenya um, okay. so it was a real sort of i don 't know mythically and in other ways, it was an adventure to, to be ordained india it wasn 't part of the plan it was because oh. that 's where sabuti was, and he couldn't go to Juchilota. And so he said, if he wanted me to, if I wanted him to ordain me, it would have to be in India. Uh, and uh, that was really amazing, really. It was amazing, yeah. Ah, yeah. So that's
0: yeah. really great. It's almost like a, yeah. a task he's given you.
1: you yes, that's walk, right. Walk through the desert if you want to. That's right, it was. And yes. and I went to Juchilota as well afterwards. So I had sort of two ordination courses anyway. And uh, uh, in India, it was... Um, the public ordination had between five and 10,000 people just turn up. Uh, there were six of us getting ordained, and it was a very, very public, uh, slightly surreal, wonderful, magical adventure. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think there yeah, were so probably the, about 12 people at my ordination. Many right,
1: yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So that was 1999.
0: 99, yeah. so quite a long time ago. Um, you lived in uh, a community called Samagavata <coughs> for 20 years. That's uh, at the LBC, above the LBC.
1: It's about 25, 26
0: years, actually. Is it? Oh, <coughs> yes, 26 years. Yeah. You've been working for Tri Ratna for 24 years. I got this yeah. muddled up there, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you were actually the chair or the chairman <coughs> of the LBC for nine years. and <coughs> Before that, you were the men's convener, so that yeah. makes... 15 years. Mm. So you spent a lot of your adult life working for and being fully involved mm. in Triratna.
1: That's right. Yes. Yep.
0: And in 2020, you joined the College College of Public Preceptors, is it called?
1: That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll go back further now before mm. your mm. Uh, induction into Buddhism. You mm. studied physics at university.
1: Yeah. And yeah. But
0: you say that you realized that too late, that you weren't <laughs> that interested in it.
1: That's right, yes, I wasn't. <laughs> I won't yeah, ask no. you why you did
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> you say that in some ways you were more interested in literature and would have liked to have studied English. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's actually going to be really useful for our conversation about right, this yeah. book, I think. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, well, both, yeah. actually, the fact that you'd studied physics and you got mm-hmm. this great interest in literature mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will understand why that's
1: important
0: later yeah yeah um okay so i think that's enough about you so what is the book that you want that you think is worth reading
1: okay good so i'm gonna hold it up hopefully you can see it on camera it's uh the master and his emissary by ian mcgillcrist uh the subtitle is the divided brain and the making of the western world Hmm. so the master and his emissary the divided brain and the making of the western world by ian medill dr ian medill uh this was published in first published in 2009 i believe so uh, about 11 years ago Ooh. yeah and i read it i'm not completely sure when i read it i'm not very good with time but i probably read it about nine or ten years ago and sure uh, and uh uh was you know, as that cliche is that I was blown away by it. I I've sort of got highlights um, uh, on practically every page because it is it, it's very dense and uh, it's full of um, insights that I think are just very very interesting and it's beautifully written. It's beautifully written. Hmm.
0: Um, Have you read uh, it just the once?
1: Yes, in its entirety. It's about six hundred. It's over six hundred pages long. Uh, and that sort of doesn't include the notes, uh, but I've read bits of it again. I've sort of referred to it more than once. Yeah, mm. and and recently last year I was fortunate, or maybe it was this year, fortunate enough to interview Ian McDiarmid on um, yeah, a Zoom interview uh, on on this work on his work. Mm. So it was a, it was a real pleasure mm. to do that, and for that I sort of reread. Uh, large chunks of it
0: yeah, yeah. yes i can imagine <laughs> it yeah. be embarrassing to
1: be caught out <laughs> that's it? right it would yeah 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 although he's very gracious he's a very um uh, um he's very articulate and obviously extremely knowledgeable but also you get this sense of um uh, a man who's um uh, humble gracious kind and uh, interestingly he says he meditates and uh um there's a lot in the book which has uh resonances with the dharma uh he's he's um uh, i i learned later that he said something about uh his interest in buddhism that he felt uh I, well i better not say three for him but something about uh he felt an affinity with buddhism so um, yeah
0: yes yeah, so I've, I've watched in mcgill chris interview a couple of times and i, I agree with you it comes across as a very lovely man as well as mm. highly highly intelligent yeah yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's fairly unusual to get those two things in one, in it one person it is yeah. 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 yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: and i i'm i suspect he's christian is he
1: well do you know uh i don't think he is mm. um uh i heard after our interview um, I think another Buddhist had also interviewed him, and Maitre Bando and I interviewed him, that he'd said to somebody that, if anything, he was a Buddhist. Oh. Uh, he was beginning to feel that he was probably a Buddhist. Um, he he says in the interview that I did that he, in a way, is a religious man, but not, he doesn't go to church. Uh, he does meditate, and he obviously believes in uh, uh, some transcendental reality, but he doesn't want to pin that down. Um, so I, I suspect, if anything, he'd, he'd call himself a Buddhist. At least I believe that that's what he might do now. Mm, yeah.
0: Interesting. Mm, mm. Uh, I would also guess that art is his religion.
1: Yeah, well, in a way, he, he's an extraordinary polymath, isn't he? He, <laughs> he started off, I believe, um, studying English. Uh, he wanted to study, I think, philosophy and theology at Oxford. They said that's not an honors degree uh, this was in the seventies. He, they suggested he studied English. He taught English at All Souls College in in. Uh, so he was a fellow. He's a fellow of All Souls and taught English. He decided that uh, he he was critical of the academic study of literature uh, and of literary criticism, or at least as it's sort of done in academia, as he found it at least then and decided that he he would study medicine and uh look at look at um uh, our experience of the world from a neurological perspective uh so he studied medicine became a psychiatrist uh, a neuroscientist a consultant psychiatrist worked at the maudsley in london um is uh, is now an author he was fascinated by um uh, why the human brain, but in a way not just the human brain, he says that all uh, animals that have um, a neural network, their their brains are divided into two. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's fascinated. He, he said that was a question for him. Why is there a division? What is the evolutionary reason for uh, a division? And particularly Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about the questions he says that fascinated him. Particularly, so it's divided, but it's also asymmetric. So the two hemispheres are not uh, uh, completely symmetric. So this this was a question. And then the third question he says is um, that all the the fibers that connect the two hemispheres, most of the function of those connections is inhibitory rather than complementary it's like one half of the brain is trying to shut down the other half and sort of say no no i don't need you uh
0: sounds I've, like a bad marriage
1: <laughs> well it's certainly in competition it's almost so why is that why are uh why has have we evolved in that way um, mm. so anyway he studied um neuroscience and, and, and psychiatry uh and the book of course is divided into two halves uh to match his thesis about the uh, operation of the two hemispheres the book ah, itself i is, hadn't noticed that but yes yeah uh so it's actually a beautiful form and content sort of uh, uh coming together um in, Interesting in, that, in the book
0: that where i got pulled down was in the first half
1: Right, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a harder read, uh, mm. at least for for me. It was a harder read because uh, in the first half he goes into as uh, a uh, neuroscientific explanation of his thesis, uh, and in the second half he talks about um, the evolution of Western culture, doesn't he? And and the influence of uh, the bihemispherical brain on the evolution of Western culture.
0: Okay, he, so. The, the question sure. is for me then, does okay. one need to read the first half before one reads the second <laughs>
1: half? I mean, maybe, maybe, I don't know, I did, but maybe you could read the second half and it would stand alone. I think it's, it's it probably would stand alone.
0: Just for those people who, like me, get bogged down and then don't read the, the book
1: at right. all. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the second half is certainly um, easier to read uh, for the un- you know for the for, for us non-neuroscientists as it were <laughs> uh, uh so i think i think that's probably a, um, a a good thing to say i know he's written well he's given lots of interviews that can be found on youtube and i think he's written a sort of summary of he has and i can't remember what it's called can you remember what it's called
0: no but it's only about 30 pages isn't it i think
1: right i've not read it um part i mean I hesitate to recommend that because well a i've not read it but b i do think it's worth persevering with this book it isn't an easy read it's dense it's long um but it's uh it it sort of builds and builds and builds in in its argument uh i think i think it's a sort of um well it took him 14 years to write it is a labor of love uh, and it's so well researched there's so many uh, spheres of uh, human sort of uh, interest that he covers. You know, it's not just neuroscience; it's art, right. philosophy, literature, uh, the uh, the evolution of language, music, religion. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, religion. That's right. It's um, it's a, it's a sort of complete. Well, I don't know how complete it is, but it it feels a very complete sort of overview of. Uh, human experience the nature of perception uh, and what it is to be alive and of course he hasn't finished but maybe we'll come on to what he's yes, doing next
0: yeah so may- maybe we should tell our listeners what mm. um so what are the t- you know who is the master who is the mm. el- emissary obviously mm. people mm. can work out one's the left brain one's the right brain mm. but why the master and the emissary and yeah what do they
1: represent okay so i'll give it a go i, I i'm um I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to try and sort of articulate what his thesis is. So the master is uh, the, the right hemisphere and the emissary, the left. And his thesis is that the right and left, I mean, it's not that they have um, completely different functions. He says that in, in almost all brain function, both hemispheres are active, but they have different sort of modes of attention. Different ways of experiencing the world. He says that they, in a way, they they create two different worlds, and he thinks that the right hemisphere is more primary. Its worldview, its um mode of attention, uh, is more primary. So maybe I'll just explain his the two different modes of attention that he thinks mm-hmm. are two before you do and before i forget you just said
0: something interesting which is they create the world yes now you could have said they perceive the world but you just said create
1: yes and and he medill twist in twist is um very definitely saying that we're somehow participants in creating the world that we experience (laughs) he's not um He's not a materialist. He's not a scientific materialist. He doesn't believe that uh, uh, matter is all there is and that consciousness is just some sort of byproduct of matter in the, in the brain. So that's really interesting, isn't it? In the first place from a, from somebody who's trained in neuroscience, he's not a materialist. He says he's not an idealist either. So he doesn't believe that mind is all there is and, um, uh, you know that mind is completely uh, responsible for creating our experience. He's not an idealist in the in the sense of say uh, Berkeley was. Berkeley was. Uh, he's he he's saying something about how we we we're participants in creation. Mind and matter, consciousness and matter, are in a way two sides of the same thing. Uh, and, uh, but he is sort of coming down on, on, um, what, what did he say? He said, he said to me that he felt that matter, which we, I guess, take for the world. That's, let's just assume that that's what we mean at the moment. So matter, he says is like a phase of consciousness by phase. He means like water has phases of ice. Or uh, liquid, or solid, or gas. Mm. Uh, matter is a phase of consciousness uh, uh, and, and is like off, offers a resistance to consciousness, um, and that resistance is necessary in the act of creation. So he sees them as very, very linked, uh, but not reducible. Certainly, consciousness not being reducible to matter. Mm. Uh, and yes, that somehow we're participating in creating our world, uh, uh, which feels true from a—I don't know. Well, I was going to say from a Buddhist perspective, but I think it sort of feels true uh, from a. Um, well, it doesn't take much thought, for example, to to to, to know to recognize that uh, everything we perceive is being perceived through the senses and through uh through consciousness uh, through the mind even uh well obviously it's, it's obvious with visual things isn't it? color doesn't exist in in independence of our perceiving of color hmm. um something something's going on he's not saying that it's all happening in the mind he's saying he doesn't believe that that's true that something is out there that um mm. our perceptions we are involved in creating our experience of the world
0: yes of course the first line of the dhammapada <coughs> comes yes there. yes our experiences are produced by mind yes um, but also it's reminding me of the 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 particular teaching to the buddha i think that a sight when you see something three things are happening you've got mm. the sight organ the eye mm. you've mm. got the thing that can be perceived by the eye and mm. the contact between them when mm. they come together, that's when you get sight. So mm. it's like a, almost like a, a, um, a cooperation between the yeah. mind and or the eye and the...
1: Yeah, yeah, mm. that's right. Yes. And without one of those three things, there's no perception, there's no experience. Mm. And uh, uh, we assume, don't we, that the world, the object that we're perceiving or seeing is exactly as it is independently of us seeing it hmm. uh, but that that is well it's common sense but common sense is wrong when you think about it <laughs> yeah okay
0: yeah <laughs> okay so where were we um I, I asked with the you
1: two question. hemispheres
0: two hemispheres yeah
1: um, so he, he he thinks that well he says the thesis is that the right hemisphere's mode of attention is um it's a mode of attention that's, that perceives connection, context, holes. I mean, as in W-H-O-L-E, uh, holes. It, it, it's um, the mode of attention that understands meaning. Uh, um, it, it has a broad, what we would call a broad awareness. Um, uh, it's able to take in the whole of, of its sort of field of experience and make sense of it. Uh, Whereas the left hemisphere's mode of attention is uh, particular, specific, focused, necessarily narrow. Uh, The left hemisphere tends to make what is implicit explicit. It sort of deals in explicit categories. Uh, It, for example, Yes, he says that the left hemisphere's mode of attention abstracts um, objects of perception and puts them into categories. His table, his tree, his uh, uh, chair. What? what ah. So, uh, whereas the right is perceiving with its senses um, more directly in an embodied way.
0: That's uh, interesting. A uh, couple of months ago, I I interviewed. Maitre Bandu on his, uh, his collection of poems on Cézanne. Mm. Uh, you may have seen that. But mm. yeah. He was talking about the way Cézanne talked about painting. He didn't talk about objects, he talked about colours yeah. and shapes. Yes. And, uh, yes. yeah, so rather than, I suppose you could say, the left seeing a table, Cézanne yes. would see a shape and a colour and a shape yes. and so on.
1: Mm. Yes, and try and do justice to what his experience was. Mm. uh in in paint uh, and I think Suzanne was sort of very he seems to have been very aware that um, all we had was our perception uh the 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 object wasn't independently of us in different light it would look different etc it was a different mountain mm. uh, at different mm. times of the day etc uh, and he created something um. I think Suzanne. Yeah, well, I won't go on to talk more about Suzanne because Mitroband already has. But I think yeah. that's right. I think that's right. So he's he's saying that the left and the right are both needed. He he talks about, for example, um, animals need. So so if 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 there was a bird uh, feeding, looking for uh, I don't know a seed on the ground amidst some grit, it's got to be able to really focus on what it wants see the seed as it were and then grasp it uh, but at the same time and that at the very same time it's got to have a broad awareness of any dangers that are lurking uh of, of its environment of uh yes any any threats uh, uh you know any predators that are around etc so it's got to be both at once focused and uh, broad mm. and he thinks that in a way they're incompatible modes of attention and and therefore need two hemispheres mm. to do it. If it was just one I don't know conjoined mass of neurons, it wouldn't be able to hold two different modes of attention.
0: Mm. and uh, uh, earlier you said that the two uh spheres of the brain inhibitory i think you said they were mm. inhibitory so mm. uh when the bird needs to really focus mm. presumably it has to inhibit the mm. wider mm. but actually it needs the wider as well
1: mm. uh, that's exactly right it needs both but it inhibits it, there's a sort of contradiction involved in in the two modes. So what I think, and this is where um, he says that the right hemisphere's mode is the master, because what he's saying is that the right hemisphere, first of all, is primary. So when uh, uh, the bird sort of first, as it were, opens its eyes, it has to have a, a large sense of where it is, uh, uh, a whole context. That's the function of the right hemisphere. But when out of that whole context the bird is looking for a twig, for a nest, it has to focus in. So what the right hemisphere does is pass some of the data to the left and then the left does the focusing. The left in humans is also what does the um, analysis, the breaking down into parts, as well as the categories, putting things into categories. Yes, this is tweak. This is useful. I will. Uh, I can have this. It, 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 it sees things in terms of utility and pleasure uh, and grasping. Oh. But then, according to Ian, what should happen is that that data that the left has analysed and focused on and um, uh, got to have more information about that data then should be passed back to the right hemisphere that can make sense of it that can because the left doesn't understand what it's seeing Hmm. Uh, it takes the right to make a um meaning out of the data Hmm. so you get this sort of this movement from the right hemisphere's mode of attention to the left back to the right That's why he's saying the right is the master and it delegates a task uh, to the left and then wants the information back once the left has done it. The left is really good at doing tasks that involve analysis, processing, etc. Yes. But it needs to be recontextualized.
0: Okay, good. And then something (coughs) goes wrong.
1: Yeah, right. So something (laughs) goes wrong when the Left hemisphere thinks it's got everything; that it's right; that it understands the world completely. The left tends to be literal-minded, he says, and it tends to always think it's right, and it doesn't <laughs> know what it doesn't know. It thinks it knows everything, whereas it doesn't realize that it doesn't have the bigger picture, the whole context. Mm. So, what Ian McNeil Twist is arguing is that in in uh, our culture, maybe we'll come on to sort of the development of western culture uh, there have been times where the left has the left's mode has become um, dominant in a yet yeah, dominant it should always be at the service of uh, this other more broad uh, um, imaginative uh, mode of uh, attention whereas it can become dominant um, uh, and then things go wrong
0: mm, interesting uh if we get time today we'll, we'll talk about the two brains to, mm. and and buddhism mm. but i just mm. want to say while i remember it as you were talking mm. i was thinking of some seminars or question answer sessions that we had with sangharachita our teacher mm. sangharachita mm. um i've been on quite a few of those and as you're talking i'm thinking oh yeah that's what he used to do actually we used to get mm. caught up in the technicalities of the dharma and he would do mm. that with us for a while but then he would mm. show us the bigger picture and he said yeah but of right. course etc mm. etc et
1: yes yes i i i mean of course sangharachita Banti, sangharachita was uh, operating in a very different sphere of Con, you know in a buddhist context but i think there's so many similarities between what he was doing is 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 doing in his teaching and in material um i yes. think there are lots of parallels
0: yeah there's there's something uh that you pro- you may not have heard because it wasn't recorded it was mm. when i was a member of the preceptors college council many many mm. years ago. we had just 10 of us, I think there were 11, 12, mm. we had a, a meeting with Bante and talking over mm. things. And mm. somebody said something like, so, you know, do order members have to do what you say? Mm. And he said, well, it's not really like that. It's more that what I'm trying to pass on is my perception of things. Uh, not, uh, not the way I think you should behave, not the, you know, not the categories of the up, but yes. my actual perception of things. Yes. That is actually don't think he said this i'm sort of riffing off that idea now that is actually what the the purpose of a buddhist teacher is not to yeah. tell you give you lists and so on but to pass on their perception hopefully you get to get that perception too
1: right yes and, and to spark something off in you mm. uh, uh, in a way that is difficult to that perception is difficult to codify isn't it and if it becomes codified i think something dies uh if 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 we end up saying this is what buddhism is this is how we should practice and it's defined to um to concretely the, the spirit of it dies yes uh, uh yes. and uh, uh yes he medilquist is saying that the left brain will want to literalize things i remember Bante was very very uh, critical of the literal mind he says doesn't he that in a way unenlightened beings one of the, the the sort of tendencies of the unenlightened mind is to literalize. Mm. And that's a real danger to, to uh, realizing the truth of the Dharma, to realizing the truth of how things are, mm. uh, our mm. tendency to literalize. yeah.
0: Okay. So let, let's try to define mm. what we mean by literalize, to literalize. What does mm. that mean? I mm. guess it means that you've, um, there's your perception of things mm. Mm. Uh, and then you you take things out of that perception put them into categories Mm. and say that's what that thing is
1: Mm. that's right i think that's right that's one way of literalizing It, it also i think the literalizing mind grasps after certainty and uh only feels sort of secure when it thinks it knows uh and and one of the ways it it sort of makes it's self-secure is by, yes, just what you've said, categorizing its perceptions and saying, oh, yes, I know that that that's tree, that's mountain, that's cloud. And, 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 and having done that, it doesn't feel the need to it doesn't necessarily feel the need to look further, to look mm-hmm. deeper.
0: You can just put it down in your library, can't you? There's a mountain, yeah. there's a table, there's a chair, that's it.
1: Yes, that's mm. right, that's right. So, of course, that's that's quite an efficient mode of operating when we need to, I don't know, do our shopping, get our breakfast, etc. We can't stand, you know, we haven't got the time to just pause over the beauty of our cornflakes. Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, so it's efficient for survival, for utilitarian purposes. Uh, but I'm struck by Bante, for example, talking about the greater mandala of uselessness mm. and the greater mandala. Sometimes he calls it the greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation.
0: The, the two and, things are synonymous.
1: Yes, and, and, and he's saying that our, our sort of utilitarian life needs to be small compared to this greater mandala of aesthetic appreciation. So uh, Um, it
0: has to be held within that greater mandala.
1: Yes. Mm. And I think there's something analogous to Medilchris saying the left hemisphere's mode of attention is at the service of this much greater mode of attention, Mm. which is where meaning is to be found, beauty is to be found, connection is to be found, values are to be found. Uh, All of those things that make us human and human life worth living Mm. are are, are not... do with utility uh, not really not 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 in the end survival is to do with utility yes
0: um, yeah so i remember that very well when that the, the transcript of that part of the seminar came out long mm. maybe 1977 or 78 mm. it was at the time we were refurbishing what became the, the london buddhist center
1: mm. where i live
0: where you live yeah mm. and uh, we were running out of money i say we i mean really sabuti was was running the whole thing but we were running out of money and people were getting very het up and very tense and stressed and uh Banshee came out with this thing it's just like uh, a completely different way of seeing it almost as if you know it doesn't matter that much if we go bankrupt it doesn't really matter in the bigger scheme of things don't worry about it so
1: much yeah. <laughs> and the bodhisattva in, in in the mahayana the bodhisattva who is the ideal buddhist or the buddhist who's uh um uh uh, vowed to attain enlightenment for all beings for the sake of all beings his activity is described as play as leela, isn't it Mm. and i i think there's something very profound about that that the most important uh, mission uh uh you know gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings is experienced as play Mm. uh uh Mm. that's 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 wonderful
0: right you you can sort of sense that with uh, people who are really really good at their jobs can't you like uh yeah that lovely young lady uh is it emma radakuna yes
1: Raducanu? Raduc- yes Raducanu. i Gosh. mean incredible yeah just wonderful
0: yeah it just lifts the spirit
1: to see her exactly doesn't it? She's, she's playing that's right and when she was asked i think before the final of the us open she was asked about it might have been before the semi-final, I can't remember, she was asked whether she felt the pressure. And she said, no, there's no pressure on me, there's no pressure on me. You know, I'm a qualifier, and uh, I'm just taking it one shot at a time. Yeah. And you just think, what a, meta- what a wonderful metaphor for how life should be, could be, yes. could be lived.
0: Yes. Yeah. Wonderful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, so he's got this, this thesis about the two uh, hemispheres, um he's he's saying that um uh the mode of attention which is very different from the two hemispheres changes the world that it's almost like the two hemispheres occupy different worlds Hmm. and he, he he's not assuming that the world is uh uh objective completely objective that it's a participant participatory thing um i thought maybe i'll just mention something that he said in my interview because he doesn't say it in the book not outright i asked him whether he thought consciousness was primary or whether uh it was a um epiphenomenon of of the brain now in the book he sa- he, he he just lays out the options and he says you could say matter is primary consciousness arises from matter You could say that consciousness is primary and matterizes from consciousness no what he said to me is that um he definitely thinks that consciousness is more fundamental mm. uh, i can't remember how he put it but he didn't want to say that in the book uh he said it would sort of frighten the horses he didn't want to frighten the horses mm. but in his next book he wants to go into that um uh so i i find that um just very exciting to have a somebody who isn't uh, uh um a uh, professed Buddhist who has got this scientific uh, background, who is backing up his his statements with neuroscience um, uh, and, uh, um, you know, brain science. And he's saying, yep, consciousness doesn't arise from the brain.
0: Mm. Yes, and uh, I watched your interview with Rupert Sheldrake, the scientist.
1: Ah, uh, yes, yes, that's what
0: yeah and there he uh he introduces the idea of panpsychism yes which is fascinating isn't it
1: yes so this idea that everything is conscious Mm. uh everything has an interiority i guess and that we can't know the interiority of a of a table or or a a, um uh a tree or whatever but but that matter is as it were always alive everything is 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 uh alive and that for me feels um i think for medial twist as well that that is true uh, uh closer to his position panpsychism mm. than either materialism or mm. idealism um just
0: just want to correct yeah. you I, th- I think i need to correct you because you oh said yeah don that sheldrake said that everything is conscious mm. but then uh, i think you said something like that in the interview he said well of course not everything in the mind is conscious
1: yes that's true mind, but not everything is conscious conscious because some things of course are not um yes. so maybe it's more like everything is aware in some way or uh, not in the way that we talk about conscious awareness yeah, but I, everything's I, alive there's some sort of interiority
0: i uh, may be a, a a real left brain person but ever since then and also like mm-hmm. my, my interview with C. seal the the oh, yeah. who's a philosopher, he, he talked about that a lot. And uh, I've been trying to see the world as, I you know, think, you know, the table, the chair, the mm-hmm. mountain, mm-hmm. being in some sense mine. And for the life of me, I can't do it. It seems like complete <clears> matter to me. It's <clears> hard to <throat> really intuit <clears throat> that.
1: Well, it's it's interesting having studied physics. I mean, I you were right to say that I soon realized that I wasn't that interested in physics. But one of the things it did give me was this... Um, <clears throat> conviction that uh, matter is not what we think it is. I mean we, we've got no real idea, physicists don't have re- any real idea of what matter is, uh, uh, and, and that becomes obvious when you study it at a fundamental level of, uh, of particles, subatomic particles. Mm. And one of the things uh, that's fascinating about modern physics, quantum physics particularly, is that this wave-particle duality, which is pretty well known about now, but the, the, the notion, not just the notion, the, f- the, the fact that subatomic particles, like electrons or photons or, or, or anything, uh, they, they change their behavior depending on the context of the apparatus, including whether they're being observed or not. Uh, so so that's, that's pretty incredible. Uh, I don't know how else one can explain that. Well, there isn't uh, a consensual explanation amongst physicists. Mm. But to me, that's sort of a hint that even a subatomic particle responds to its environment. Mm. It's not a responsiveness. Mm. And it seems to uh, also respond to whether it's being observed or not.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Towards the end of the book. I think it's that book anyway McGillchrist talks about some experiments that have been done with plants and so on mm. actually this may be another book um that i've been sheldrake
1: thinking. talks about it doesn't he sheldrake yeah. talks about
0: it could do but where um uh a plant now there's something to do with a someone that had some... a scientist had some plants in a room mm. and she got the they always go towards the light right so mm. it's... well she got them to respond to the sound of the computer the computer mm. humming because they mm. knew that when they knew uh that when the computer was on there would be light so then there was no light but the computer was humming so they went towards the sound anyway so wow yeah
1: so so incredible kind of things yes that must be another book i don't remember it in this uh, but... yeah
0: it was um uh galileo's ever galileo oh wow era.
1: oh wow yeah, oh, wow. yeah. yeah. So I think I think there is a way of imagining the world as alive. I don't say that I manage to do that at least all the time, but at my best, as it were, I think I have got have had glimpses at least of um, perceiving the world as alive, and it's a an, it's a sort of um, it's a mode of perception. It's, it's it's kind of possible to yes to, to do that yeah Uh, it's easier with the natural world isn't it it's harder to do bante says somewhere doesn't he that he can't quite do it with plastic
0: well i actually yes i was i may have been there when he said that 1981 in tuscany i remember i was pushing him a bit because he was saying everything is alive (laughs) and i I just couldn't see it so i pushed him (laughs) and uh, i think he mentioned plastic at that moment or i did Uh, but then uh he said well i don't want to talk you into it Ah. which i thought was very interesting didn't want to yeah. make me see things that way yeah
1: yeah 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 well in a way that's that is um not only is that the spirit of buddhism but it, you could say that's the spirit of this right hemisphere's sort of a it's not gonna it's not gonna sort of force things mm. uh uh I, I think it's much more open than that yes um mm. uh, yeah, yeah, and and also, I think the right hemisphere understands metaphor in a way that the left doesn't. So language is metaphorical. So to say that everything is alive is we're talking metaphorically. Mm. Uh, we, it's not easy to completely define what we mean by that. It's an intuition, or or, or maybe an imaginative. Well, it's a perception, um, uh, but that's hard to hard to sort of pin down literally pinned down mm.
0: Mm. and that's um uh i think he said something along these lines that's why poetry is a better mm. explainer or mm. mm. explain is explain seems to me a left hemisphere word but yes a better conveyor better yes. communicator of reality than is uh, ordinary pose prose yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah and and one of the things that ian medill twist i think that that him off the academic teaching of English was that he felt that there was just too much, um, you know, you take a poem which is a concrete, as it were, uh, um, uh, 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 a whole, uh, uh, a creation that's a whole thing, um, a whole experience, a world in a way, and, and you dissect it in well, that's how he talks about. I've never studied English formally, but that's how he he talked about um, uh, literary criticism. You dissect it to explain it, to analyse it, and you end up with a bunch of broken images or something, and you've lost you've lost something. Uh, you've lost the meaning. You've lost the point.
0: Yes, but uh... In my interview with Mitra Bandu, when I was asking him about a certain poem, yeah. uh, well, I was more asking him about, yeah, the poem about the painting. So that was quite interesting. But right, yeah, yeah. it really helped me to get into the poem more. Ah, well, that's
1: great. That's great because that, because there is a point to the analysis. There is a point to that that um, uh, probing into uh, uh uh, you know, the conceptual meaning of a, of a poem if it enriches the experience of then reading the whole. So that, I think, is an example of the right hemisphere delegating a task to the left, and then the left passing it back to the right, and then when you, when you read the poem again, you've got an enriched experience of it for having done that analysis. Oh. I, I, I think that's exactly right. So if, if we do that with the world, not just with a the poem, then then we're going to live a more enriched life. Mm. So it's not that the analysis, the focusing is wrong. It has a place, but it, it has to then be put back into a context mm. of the whole. Mm. Yeah.
0: Cool. Uh, a few weeks ago, I introduced, I interviewed Nick Gauntlet, I'm sure you oh, know. Oh, yes.
1: Yes, uh, I do. Yes, he's in my mentor group.
0: Yeah, young, yeah. young yeah. man. lovely yeah. young
1: man. But yeah, delightful. Absolutely,
0: absolutely brilliant guitarist. Have you heard him play? I don't think I have, no. Yeah. Gosh, gosh, he's good so you got him to play that's great well no we we had videos of him playing in bands and stuff. Oh, okay
1: right right i right. could
0: wax eloquent about that but that's not the point i'm trying to make but before we began to talk about his love of progressive rock music because. he had just handed in a dissertation on education higher education music and he was oh, yeah. doing the same thing that yes. he, he found it sometimes demoralizing because they yes. were splitting yes. things up and analyzing things too
1: much Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and it's probably a bit of a cliché, but it's true that for many people, uh, academic study of uh, music or literature or uh, art can, can uh, sort of destroy your love for it. Mm. Um, uh, uh, so I think there's something about uh, the need to remember what we're really involved with is, is the whole. Mm. Is the whole, uh, mm. and, and, and I, I, I also think that it, it's interesting, this, well, from a dharmic notion that reality is an unbroken whole, or what we call reality, this phenomenal world, this conditioned world, mm. is an unbroken whole. There's no um, real, separate, existing things. Mm. Uh, there is just an unbroken web of conditions that are constantly giving rise to more conditions and unfolding. Uh, that that way of perceiving is um, well. That's what the enlightened mind would perceive, presumably.
0: Yes, well, I, I think that's the real meaning of the so-called no-self doctrine. The Buddha didn't yes. say you didn't exist, but you existed within a matrix. You ex- yes, perhaps that's the wrong word because of the film, but you sure. existed. <laughs> you existed um, in dependence, not independent, but in dependence upon yes. everything around you. You couldn't exist yes. with everything without anything around you. So, in that sense, no. there's no separate
1: self. Separate self. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. Mm. And we're definitely part of well you know i exist as much as a tree does and i uh, uh we're yes. definitely it's, there's something going on yes. it's just the separate and the fixed nature of it mm. uh and 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 so presumably as buddhists what we're trying to do is realize that which seems to be what mcgill twist is saying the right hemisphere is able to do the left hemisphere treats its experience in terms of things and in terms of static entities uh, as 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 real as realities so this notion that i am a fixed and separate entity in a world that is independent of me and my perceptions that to me i mean this is me um reading into Medial Priest's book but that to me seems like a left hemispherical perception mm. uh, and of course it has its use when it comes to survival it also has its use to, when it comes to pleasure he says the left uh the values of the left hemisphere are utility and pleasure mm. so all the grasping that i do because i think it'll bring me pleasure uh, um, is a sort of left hemispherical mode the right is truer the right's view is truer so oh, that's, that's interesting what
0: okay so uh I think that is the the main difference between um Papantia and reflection
1: Ah, yeah. God so
0: so Papantia is uh what is it uh, conceptual proliferation mm-hmm. and it's based on me it's based on what I yeah, right. Yeah, right. So you, you begin to proliferate. Let's say somebody's been nasty to you or you proliferate mm. for ages afterwards mm. about what you mm. should have done and mm. how can you get your own back and that was unfair and so on. Or mm. you have a very nice experience and then you spend the next couple of weeks Trying to figure out how you can get that again. That's all per puncture, conceptual proliferation. So, when yeah. I've done reflection workshops, people have said, What's the difference between conceptual proliferation and real reflection? And I think the difference is that conceptual proliferation is wanting something for me. Yes. It's the brain working hard to get that. Whereas yes. reflection is what's there, you know, not yeah. for me, but what is there? Never mind me for yes. the moment, but let's see what's actually present.
1: Yes. Mm. and that requires a certain standing back doesn't it mm. um a certain sort of uh i want to say sort of detachment i don't mean in a clinical sense but it means a certain standing back from my immediate desires or it's one of um,
0: gilchrist's main points isn't it that the
1: right yeah point. steps
0: back from experience
1: yeah mm. yeah and and is therefore c- capable of um uh Receptivity, or, or what Keats called negative capability, is capable of uh, yes, creating a space in which meaning and uh, truth and uh, can 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 arise. And it feels to me like when we when we Try and practice mindfulness. I'm not very good at practicing mindfulness, although I try and teach others to be. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, if you can't do it, teach it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a maxim, isn't it, for life? Uh, when we try and practice mindfulness, we are trying to, in a way, create um, a, a space. It feels for for a start, we're trying to not sort of just see things in terms of what it, what's in it for me. Mm. We're trying to see things, well, with the eye of beauty, for example. Um, we're, we're trying to see it with an appreciative uh, eye, mm. uh, with, a, uh, with the eye of love even. Mm. Uh, that feels intrinsic to mindfulness. Mindfulness can't just be a cold kind of detached, detachment. And yet there is a sort of, Uh, standing back from what's in it for me for for me Uh, Mm. and uh, anybody who meditates has probably had the experience i would have thought of coming out of a a sort of relatively good or concentrated meditation and feeling that ah yes you're 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 not grasping at things you can just open your eyes and the world is presenting itself Mm. and it's it feels in that moment or however long it lasts to to be more beautiful uh and even to be um more alive uh, Mm. to to have some sort of Mm. uh, radiance uh to it so i think Mm. tom sorry no
0: you're reminding me of um the the duality which we often call the subject object duality Hmm uh but apparently that's a, a not very good translation of grahia and grahaka or grahica ah. and grahia mm, um mm. Uh, grahia i can't remember which way around it is now actually maybe you know yeah one yeah. of them is gras- grasper grasped and grasped
1: yes yes and
0: what we're trying to overcome what we're trying to transcend in the spiritual life yes is the the duality of grasper and grasp stop grasping things Yes, yeah. stop
1: grasping things, yes. Yeah, yeah. yes it's not so right. much
0: we're trying to overcome subject to object, but more no. grasping subjects for the grasp subject, or the right, grasping right. subject.
1: Yeah, but maybe then what arises, if we could do that, is a sense that we're part of something, not, not, not so separate. Mm. Uh, and maybe a sense of me in here and world out there would start to sin, uh uh even sort of dissolve that that boundary would 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 dissolve in which case there might be well maybe one way of talking about it is that it doesn't feel so much like there's a separate subject and an object mm. um uh i think i think there's I, th- I like that grasp and grasp um uh uh translation that teaching medial makes a different uh, a, a distinction between um wanting and longing
0: that's a tremendous part of the book isn't it isn't it Some
1: fantastic
0: thinking Goes yeah. on for pages, yeah. doesn't it yeah
1: yeah 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 and i think that that's really because because sometimes people say oh well me wanting to get enlightened isn't that a sort of wanting shouldn't buddhism you know uh, be about eradicating desire and isn't a desire for enlightenment a sort of desire and isn't that yes. part of the problem? And, yes. But I think it's to mix up mm. wanting with longing, mm. uh, uh, wanting with yearning. That longing is healthy, positive, because it takes us beyond the immediate instincts of me and mine. Uh, the wanting contracts us into into me and mine.
0: It's uh, it's uh, not complex, but it's a very subtle that's it it's a very subtle he draws out the difference very subtly and it's quite hard to do that in a conversation isn't it yeah it is
1: it is it's wonderful it's wonderful yes uh, uh, there's so many wonderful parts to it yes. and, and of course we haven't really talked about the second part of the book so much which is the his 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 thesis that the rise of western culture western civilization has often been A sort of competition between the two hemispheres modes of perceiving, modes of attention, Mm. and uh, that if you lose the balance, um, and particularly if the left starts to dominate in an unhealthy way, which it is prone to do, then you create um, a culture which will um, go very wrong, uh, overreach itself. He says that that happened in ancient Greece, it happened in ancient Rome, uh, at the end of, you know, uh, yeah, Roman empire and that it's happening now. I that found that
0: very now. interesting just to stay with ancient Greece for a little while, mm. uh, mm. where he thought the earlier philosophers of the time, Heraclitus, is that how you mm. pronounce it? Heraclitus, mm. uh, was very, it was very, mm, what's the word? Mm. I can't think of the word, but he wasn't grasping after. He wasn't mm. very conceptual. He realized mm. that you could not really conceptualize about the world. I think that was it. Whereas mm. when it came later to Plato, Aristotle and Socrates, they were really mm. pinning things down mm. intellectually. Mm. Mm.
1: Mm. Mm. And, and then of the beginning of the end, in a way. Of the beginning of the end. Yes. Uh, uh, he says that, you know, that, that, that I think he sort of says that the left's, mode of attention can allow you to become very successful, uh, I guess, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the world of utility and mm. uh, acquisition and, and, and so forth. Mm. Uh, but if you forget the, the primacy of the rights mode, then you overreach yourself, and when mm. a culture overreaches itself, it, 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 it starts to decline it, okay. it as the seeds of its own yes. decline.
0: Okay, so then you said it's happening now. So tell us a little yeah. bit about that if you can.
1: Well, I think he, he, he's sort of, he's saying things like our um, exploitation of the natural world, hmm. which uh, uh, seems to be at least leading to, you may not agree with this, but seems to be <laughs> leading to uh, uh, a crisis in our environment uh, uh, or, or, or certainly a, a, a dramatic change. He seems to that that is is um, a result of this sort of seeing na- the natural world as um, as utility, you know, uh, mm. just mm. something that is for us as human beings to exploit. Uh, the the decline in I don't know in particularly in in um, some Western countries the decline of uh, a sense of community, a sense of uh, solidarity. Mm. Uh, um, it seems that as as cultures become more wealthy, there's more and more of a decline in in in, in community and and more and more isolation and in sort of individuals living in their own lovely yes. spaces and and, yes. and and so forth it's and unhappiness that follows.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how popular the the concept of community is in our culture Mm. Uh, and i think it's very popular because we don't really have it people talk about the the football community what football community
1: that they hate each other you know exactly (laughs) indeed indeed well i belong to my my mobile own provider is gift
0: yeah i doing that
1: too we're part of that community we're community we're a gift community yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it's lovely isn't so, it they send yeah, sent emails oh hello yes, <laughs> yes that's right that's right so so no we don't have it we don't have it that's right so so i think that's a that's a and it's causing uh, well, we were saying earlier before we started recording that I, I was saying anyway that I felt very fortunate in this pandemic, partly because I've not become ill uh, and, and and my sort of closest friends and family haven't, haven't been very ill anyway. Nobody's been very ill. Uh, but partly I felt fortunate because I, I live with friends. Uh, there were 10 of us in, in this community for most of the time, and we got on really well. So when we first had this lockdown in England, um, I don't know, I just enjoyed hanging out with my friends more, uh, and the simplicity of not being able to go anywhere. Just London life, which is normally, I don't know, well, for me anyway, I get into this grasping mode. There's so much to do and so much to see, and well, I couldn't do any of that, uh, uh, my busy diary was just kind of cancelled, and there was a, a simplicity to that because I was with friends mm. in a community. If I'd been living on my own, I think I would have been very, very miserable.
0: Well, uh, you're making me a, a bit envious now because I do live on my <laughs> own, and I've been spending a lot of time on my own this last year right. and a half. But yeah. I have actually enjoyed it. I'm I'm very much a right type of person.
1: Sure, sure, yeah. sure. So of course, there's temperamental. Mm. Uh, uh, preferences aren't there, uh, yes. But you are part of a network of friendships. Yes. Uh, I mean, physically you may have been living on your own, and yet you know that you're yes you're loved. There's lots and lots of friends yes um and 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 meaning in your life that comes from that,
0: yeah, it'd be very different if I was a lonely old man who didn't hardly knew anybody that'd probably been really, really difficult, yeah,
1: and yeah. It has it has been for so so many mm. people, yeah, so I think that's another sort of way in which our culture has gone wrong uh he he also I think well he also has sort of suggested ways out, doesn't he, or he says that there are ways out of this um, mm. uh um dire straits that our culture is heading towards, where the left brain has got, has run away with itself, its left brain mode has run away with itself. And he talks about three ways out. One is through art, one is through uh, nature and the natural world, the environment, uh, and um, the other is um, through religion. Mm -hmm. And I think he talks, because all three of them have the possibility the potential to take us outside of ourselves take us they, 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 they include the other no. they take me away from my own uh, n- sort of small self preoccupations and concerns mm. uh, uh, yeah. and I just find it interesting that that's in in Ratna, mm. we've got such a lot of emphasis on all of those all of those things yes uh, as well as on community and friendship as well as another way of taking us beyond uh self in a narrow way mm. Uh, mm. he has a critique though he says that look in 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 art um he's he's quite critical of postmodernism. Uh, i don't know how we're doing for yes. time by the way <laughs> oh no, we're not we're doing very well.
0: well 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 over well. <laughs> oh, we? yeah,
1: <laughs> oh, right. well we'll have to start wrapping up anyway yeah. you might need to edit this bit or something <laughs> <But laughs> no we're not
0: going to edit <laughs> this bit this is most important part
1: okay well he's he's quite critical of um post-modernism uh i think he is anyway he and is. he's saying look in in art um what you've you you've got a tendency for art to become more more conceptual mm. um and and uh even i guess political i don't know if he says that that's me maybe saying it but suddenly art becomes utilitarian it becomes for something there's a and message that it's yes. trying to communicate
0: and it's become explicit
1: and it's become explicit yes. and 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 then now, whatever one feels about that, maybe there's some value in conceptual art. I don't know; it's not my topic, but maybe there is. I'm not, I'm not an artist, I can't judge. But as a doorway out of this left brain running away with itself, conceptual art won't do. Mm. I don't think it will do it mm. because you're locked back into that left brain mode. Mm. Um, nature. He talks about well, the more and more of us live in urban environments. I live in ethanol green you know Mm. on the second floor third floor
0: Uh, on a a very busy road
1: on a very busy road um fortunately there's a park nearby Mm. uh but but yes most of us many of us in the world now live in urbanized environments we spend increasing amounts of time looking at a screen Mm. uh quite divorced from the natural world and an embodied experience of the natural world Yes, which is again um, pushing us towards the left brain kind of. So, so our our, our, um, our alienation from the natural world is 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 part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I, I I mean, sometimes some people who are uh, uh, campaigning very hard for uh, uh, a change to our attitude to the environment, who want to reverse climate change if they can or at least halt slow it down. Sometimes it's still a utilitarian motive mm. for preserving mm. the natural world. Mm. Uh, so that we can
0: carry on what so, so,
1: <laughs> carry on what we're doing, as it were. So yes. so that's still not quite the right brains approach. Mm. Um, mm. And then religion, well religion has become and 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 all religions, including Buddhism, can become dogmatic, uh, mm-hmm. literalized, dog- dogmatized, um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 and so forth, utilitarian. And you lose this... A, a lot of people, and I'm, I think this is sort of fair enough, a lot of people come to Buddhism, to the Dharma, because they want to be happier in some way, because life isn't working, they want to be happier. They want mm-hmm. to make their lives a little bit better. Mm. and they start to meditate and then get more interested but ultimately if you want to go further with buddhism if your goal is enlightenment then it it's got to go beyond that sort of utilitarian uh, motive even the motive to be happy mm. uh, at its own level at least mm. um, so so he thinks that in our postmodern culture we've we're closing the the very means of escaping from the, the dilemmas that we're in. Uh, mm. Art, nature, and um, religion. Mm. Uh, we're closing those doors uh, or maybe for many those doors have closed. Mm. Uh, so he thinks that's a real crisis because in the past, um, there's been some sort of um, remedy possible. And the right hemisphere's mode of perceiving has reasserted itself as dominant, for example, in the Renaissance, uh, he he talks about that
0: yes, yes uh, and then in the romantic area as well
1: mm, yeah. After yeah the enlightenment right. yeah yeah yeah, that's right the the mm. the romantic poets have have a very different relationship to to nature for example
0: yeah uh he really made me want to take Wordsworth seriously and read his yes. poems very carefully. Yes,
1: yes, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, and one so of, many...
0: one of on. the big problems of that book is there's so much I want to read, so much music I, I want to listen to, so much I, I want to see, my left yeah. brain is getting involved with the...
1: Oh, we Right. Got to do that now. And, 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 and grasping after it in a way, yeah. Yes. and And we, just in this, I don't know how long we've been talking, we've only sort of skimmed... The surface of some of his ideas um, mm. but what i like is that in a way his thesis is fairly simple and then he just uses different m- examples from different spheres of experience to expand upon it to keep coming back to it he spirals around this thesis in yes. a, it's a single idea and he's saying well he's, he's about to release another book Mm. uh in november i believe it comes out and i think it's called the matter with things Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's in he says that it's um it's even bigger than the masters and and his emissary it's in two volumes uh they come out in november so i'm well i'm looking forward to reading them and Mm. uh, i'm hoping that i can um meet him again and interview him uh uh, on 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 his new book
0: that'll be tremendous Mm Well, I think we better stop there because yeah, we, we have been going stop.
1: for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. That
0: was that was tremendous. Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Neil Aradja.
1: A uh, real pleasure. Real, real pleasure to yeah, have yeah. a conversation with you. Very, very stimulating. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for asking uh, me.
0: And this was a great beginning to this series, uh, books worth reading. So we have, as you say, only skimmed the surface. How could we do anything else with such a big book? Uh, the main point of the interview is to get people interested so they'll go on to read the book so i hope we've done that
1: great well thank you at the end thank you